We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Let me um, show you something here from Proverbs in chapter 1 that Charles read to us. This last week, I got together with a couple of my buddies. They called me. I hadn't seen them in 50 years since 1969. Who was not a human in 69? Numbers of you were not humans, all right? Well, that's when I graduated. And so myself and John Key and Bill Bozarth, John went on to be a Baylor Bear, uh, was a uh, uh, school administrator in Anahuac, Texas, way down south. And Joe Bozarth went to Texas A&M. Yep. And uh, now he runs a liquor store. And uh, he does. A well-known one, too. And, uh, but they were two of my good buddies, and they both did quite well. And we sat down, and I met them halfway in Alvarado, Texas. That's halfway to Waco at Massey's Barbecue. And we sat down there, and we just kind of do like you always do with your old high school buddies. We walk back through guys we went to high school with. And, you know, they live in Waco, and so they know a lot more than I do. And I'd mention somebody, and then they would tell quite often a story of tragedy. And there was a term that kept being used. That is a wasted life. That was a wasted life. And quite often it was about a great athlete. It was a wasted life, a great mind, a great uh, wasted life, a scintillating spirited girl that everybody loved. It was a wasted life. And it wasn't because of disease or, or um, change in the economy. It was a very marked left turn when you should have gone right in the area of relationships and morality. And so they would get themselves in trouble. And we just kind of both, all of us mused at how, you know, you could be in Edwards Literary Society like I was not, okay? <laughs> you could be National Honor Society. You could be an athlete. You could be anything. And it didn't really matter. Amen? It don't really matter how rich you were that life comes down to moral decisions, whether it's God or the devil. And once you pick a path, you pick the destination. Inadvertently, you pick it. And so that's kind of a prep for what this chapter is about. In chapter one, in verse 10, you saw a voice cry out, the voice of the crowd in verse 10. If sinners entice you, don't consent. They offer you power, wealth, autonomy. They offer you uh, uh, copious you know, luxury if you'll just follow with us. Don't consent. And then you'll see in chapter uh, 2, no, let's see, yeah, 2, in verse 16, there's another voice. It's not just the voice of power and the voice of wealth. It's the voice of the lust of the flesh to deliver you, verse 16, from the strange woman. The word strange simply means she is a woman outside of the divine will. That male and female created he them. What God joins, you don't put asunder. Uh, be delighted in the breast of the wife of your youth. Drink from your own well and do not cast thy springs into the street. And so a strange woman is any woman that is outside 
of your wife. And so you have in chapter one, verse 10, the voice of the crowd. You've got in chapter two, verse 16, the voice of the immoral woman. In other words, you've got the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the world. And then you've got another lady, another voice. In verse 20, it's Lady Wisdom. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. In other words, you've got the crowd of males. You've got the illicit lady. Question, are they still out there? Oh, gracious, yeah. And then you've got this third voice trying to drown them out. The voice of wisdom. The voice of the word of God. We would say, in a world of the less of flesh, less of the eyes, pride of life, you've got the voice of the Bible calling out to follow me. And that's why in the Bible, there are three ideological women, that there is lady wisdom, and there is a lady that is simply called in Revelation, the harlot of unfaithfulness to God. And then there is uh, the bride of Christ. And that's the woman who can go either way. And whenever you look at Israel's history, it's, you know, Israel in the Old Testament is called the bride of God. In the New Testament, it's been evolved into the bride of Christ, church. And so history in the Old Testament is which lady Israel will follow. Lady wisdom or the harlot. And then in the church, the story of the church has been who the bride of Christ will follow. The word of God or the harlot that is unfaithful to God. And uh, quite often, as my buddies John and Joe discussed, an individual's life is which lady they will follow. Wisdom are the harlot because they each have their own separate destinations. So watch this here in verse 20. It says, I just want to show you four things about lady wisdom. If the Bible could talk, what would she say? Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the gate, she utters her sayings. You'll notice first that wisdom shouts because God's wisdom is not secretive. It's not like you, you know, go to the top of Mount Fujiyama to learn things that nobody else knows. Uh, when we were in Israel, we saw a group of people called the Druze. You remember those, Rosie, when we were there? They wear big baggy pants because they believe that the Messiah will come through a man. And when he drops the child, they want to be able to catch him. Makes perfect sense. So you can always tell the Druze by their big baggy pants. And uh, I asked our guide, I said, what do Druze, are they Muslim? He said, no, they're a breakaway. I say, are they Christian? No, 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 they're Christian. They're their own guys. I said, what do they believe? He said, no one knows. I said, well, what do the Druze say they believe? He said, no one knows. He said, they have kind of patriarchal guys that are the head of the Druze and they keep the secret knowledge to themselves and don't tell anybody. I said, man, that's a religion right there. <laughs> where nobody knows what you believe. Uh, the, the mystic religions of, of uh, Greece, they were called the mystery religions of Gnosticism. There was privy knowledge that no one could know. It was kind of like being, don't email me, a 33 and a third degree Mason, all right. No one knows but you, the inside key. And quite often that's the selling point of religion. We're gonna tell you something that nobody can know unless it's us. It's kind of like philosophy. 
is Gnostic. That no one understands what we're saying, but those in the know do. And they're on the inside track. They're hip. They, they live in Austin. Okay. And so that's the way you really get to be hip as you learn this stuff about ontological, epistemological morasses that uh, feed into the metaphysic of your neuralist. Okay. And so you learn this mystic knowledge. Wisdom shouts because the wisdom of God is like the... Uh, King said in the book of uh, Ezra, he spoke of Ezra having the wisdom of God in his hand, that he could open it. It was bound and he could read it. I want to show you something interesting. I could just quote or paraphrase this. I want you to see it. The law of God is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then we see how Israel fares on that as we move into their history and the prophets rise up. But at the end of Deuteronomy, the law of God, God gives a little statement about how you're to see his word. So keep your finger right here and take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, back in the clean portion of your Bible. And in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 11 through 14, the law is given through chapter 28. In chapter 29, you have a warning that you had best not turn away from it. And in chapter 30, the encouragement if you do. And so in verse 11 to 14, he closes out the law by saying this, this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, or literally it's not too high, or literally it's not too wonderful for you. I'm not commanding you things that you can never know and understand. No, I'm speaking humanese to you. It's not too difficult and it's not out of reach. Or, or literally, it's not far off. I'm not giving you heavenly truths that you can't understand. I'm speaking in your language. Like when the living word, Jesus Christ, became one of us and you could touch him, you could talk to him, you could put your head on his shoulder. I've come down to you. And he says... In verse 12, it's not in heaven that you should say, who will go to heaven for us to get it, to make us hear it, that we could observe it. He said, I'm not giving you knowledge that you have to go into heaven to figure out what I said. I have spoken to you. It's within arm's length. You don't have to go up and find it. You don't have to be mystic. You don't have to be a druze. You don't have to have a vision. I've given it to you in nouns and pronouns in your language. In verse 13, it is not beyond the abyss or the sea that you should say who will cross the sea for us to get it, that we may hear it. No, to get divine wisdom, you don't have to get in your boat and go to Pakistan. You don't have to go to Babylon. You don't have to head to the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, Mesopotamia, and learn it. You don't have to go to Oregon, okay? That... It's not high and it's not out. It's right here. Just like God's word to us and especially his living word in Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten son of God. And so in verse 14, the word is very, what word do you have? Near. I'm right there. It is in your mouth. It's in your heart. You can read it and then you can confess it. You can say, this is the way that I will live. 
that you may observe it. So God says, I have come all the way from where I am down to where you are. I've taken a guy, Moses, I've inscribed it. He's copied it down and you've got the law. And so wisdom shouts because it's very accessible to you. You can go into a hotel and there's a Gideon's Bible. You can go to your grandma's and on the coffee table is a big dusty Bible. Uh, how many Bibles do you have in your home? There's no telling how many you have. Isn't God great that I'm coming down to you? Now, just listen, I'll, I'll come to a manger. I'll go to a cross. I'll leave a tomb. I'll have guys speak my word. They'll write it down. You can copy it. You can see it. And so it says, I'm right here. And also, uh, wisdom shouts in public places. The street, verse 20. The square, verse 20. Noisy streets, verse 21. Entrance of the gates, verse 21. It's, it's in public places for the reality of life. You don't have to go to a convent. You don't have to go to a nunnery. You don't have to go and escape to British Columbia and live out in the wilderness to get, you know, insights from God. I'm at the street, I'm at the corner, that I come down to where you are, that I can help you with how you view yourself and your fellow man. I can help you in your marriage, help you in your morality, how you handle your money, how you get along with people, how to raise your kids, how to treat your grandkids, how to treat government, how to treat speed laws to a degree. Okay, so God says, I can, I'll get gritty and nasty with you. I'll get right down there and I'll show you how to do this. And then a third thing is that it shouts out of fear of what might happen. Verse 22, how long, oh naive ones. The, the Hebrew word for naive is simple. Wise people feel things, but they differentiate and go away that is best. They, are, they hear things, but they discount them. And with wisdom, they, they divide what is good from what is bad. A simple person is like a kid, a knave. What they want is what they want. And when do they want it? Now. That's when you're simple. When you're at the mercy of your emotion, when you're at the mercy of the crowd telling you. And so a fourth thing is you see that wisdom is just a prayer away. Turn to my reproof, verse 23, just turn and I'll pour out my spirit. I will give you life and I'll make my words known to you. If you give the proper attitude, the Bible's going to come alive to you. Jesus said, from, about those who believe in him, from his belly shall flow rivers of living water that I have the best to give you. Any of you ever felt this way about your kids? Don't stand up and yell, but have you ever felt this way where you had a kid at the crux of life and they were about to make decisions and you looked at him and you said, you know, I'm 50 years old plus. I've been there. Uh, I've seen it out there. I have so much for you to help. I can send you to school. I can do this. If you'll just listen to me, I can help you. And that when your kid goes off, there's that feeling in you of, 
I have so much to give you. I've learned so much, but I can't get you to sit and listen to me. And that's kind of the way that wisdom is. And that's why in verse 23, the lady just says, turn, just turn. The Greek word metanoia means to change the noetic, the mind, to change your mind. You know how we translate it in English? Repent, repent. Penitent again. You're always having to be repent in life and go wrong, bad, my bad, and come back to God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so if you'll just turn, you don't have to, like Deuteronomy says, you don't have to go up into the heavens. You don't have to go into the abyss. You don't have to go across the sea. You just turn to my reproof and I will pour out my spirit. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching reproof, correction, and training that the man of God might be adequate, prepared for every good work. Just come to it and it'll change you. You know, when I trusted Christ as my savior, it was like going through a, a portal into a different universe that all of a sudden I could see in the beginning, God created the heavens. That's where it came from. Each brought forth after his own kind. There you are. God said, don't do this. Oh, they did it. Oh no, you'll die. Seed of woman will crush the serpent's head. Ah, there's redemption. Here it comes through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And now I can see the history of Israel. Christ is coming. There he is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There goes the gospel and the Acts. Here's the epistles where I can see how to live and how to walk and how to treat my fellow man. Revelation, he's coming back. Whoa. It was all there. It was like I entered into a new world. No class I took could teach me that. No TV show would teach me that. Even Gunsmoke. <laughs> Even Gunsmoke would not teach me that. But I could learn it in the Bible. I never, ever have recovered from the Bible. You dig? The concept of the Bible, that in a dark world of evil, that I could know the mind of God simply I mean, I didn't even have to have eyes. I could learn Braille and learn it. It was literally at my fingertips, at the end of my, my eyeballs that I could take it and I could learn by precepts what would keep me from pain so I didn't have to learn from the backside. And so that's what it's saying. Every man in Christ is a new creation. Just come and I want to give you life. Well, in verse 24 and 25, uh, this admonition is about to become a sad story. Like me and John and Joe sitting at Massey's barbecue. I would mention a guy, oh, and they would start. This is what happened to this guy. This girl, you remember her? Oh man, yeah, this is what happened. No, yeah, that's what happened. And so this conversation that we're having here in the Bible is about to become a sad story. In verse 24, because I called to you and you refused. 
I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention and you neglected all my counsel. You didn't want my reproof. You see the progression? You refused it, then you ignored it, then you just neglected it, and then you went on without me. You became Satan's child. Satan said to Eve, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree, you shall not eat from it or even touch it lest you die. That's wrong. You will not die. God simply said that and lied to you because he's not good and he didn't want to share the throne. He likes to have you underneath him. The worst thing that ever happened to you, Adam and Eve, is God. The next thing after that was the worst thing ever happened to you is his word. It's going to ruin you. You will never find out who you're supposed to be. You need to be woke. And you need to turn from the past. And you need to follow me. I'm your best friend. I, the serpent, I'm the fan of man. Follow me. She ate it. And we were in the dark. And so Lady Wisdom says, you're on your own. You've taken off on your own. And as one man said, life has a board forever behind when you head off on your own. And verse 26, wisdom says, it's going to catch up with you. I will also laugh at your calamity. You laughed at me when I said, let's get in the word. You, someday I'm going to laugh at you. When your dread comes, when your dread comes like a storm, it's going to be like a tsunami that's coming your way. Anybody here remember when we were kids, Hurricane Carla? How about Katrina or Hugo? There were places in Mississippi when Carla hit in the 60s that I still remember. We can't find them. The cities are gone. We don't know where they went. It swept them away, took them down, flooded them, and took them out to sea. And we have no archaeological dig that's even there. And so wisdom says, it's coming. It's coming. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity like a whirlwind, and then distress and anguish come upon you, how many of you remember Charles Manson? Wasn't he a fine feller? Called himself God. His family, he was going to offer them what the world forbid them, which was total freedom to do anything they wanted. It was almost prophetic. He lived in a Hollywood set that was a facade called the Spawn Ranch. Y'all know that? That's where he lived. It was a Hollywood set that was a facade. And uh, he got his people to do his killing for him. He had a grudge against Doris Day's son. Did you know that? Because he was a promoter and he didn't like Charles's music. Can't imagine why. And uh, he was bitter and he sent his people to begin a revolution of which he was going to take over and rule the world. Makes perfect sense. And they killed for him. And he stepped back because he didn't have his hands in it. He was out of the way. Nobody knew who they were until one of his family members got arrested for a crime and mouthed off to her cellmate. 
and the cellmate went to the sheriff and they got him down and found out where they were and sure enough, it was Charlie. Charlie heard SWAT team coming at the Spawn Ranch and he tried to hide in a facade sink underneath it with the doors closed like a little cockroach. And they found him, opened it up, and there is Charlie, all 127 pounds of Charlie. And they drug him out like a little rat and put him through his trial. They lifted the death penalty, if y'all remember, right before that. So him and all of his family never saw light again. And now they're slowly dying in prison. And his name is a watchword for evil. I've never dedicated a baby named Manson. It's just not a popular name. Would you say that a hurricane hit him and all of those kids that he promised stuff to and they followed him, it hit it like a hurricane. Well, in verse 29, then they'll call on me when it's too late. See, you can avoid a lot of heartache by the precepts of God, or you can neglect the precepts of God and go through pain. Question, can you learn then? Yeah, but the, the uh, what do they say? The tuition is high. Have you ever said to your kids, I don't want you to pay the tuition that I paid to learn this, learn from me. And so wisdom says it's coming and you're going to learn from it and it's going to be painful. You know, the apostle Paul, it's interesting on two occasions, he talks about false teachers in the church at Ephesus and he calls them by name, Hymenius and Philetus. And then he says, whom I have delivered over to Satan, that they might be taught not to blaspheme. These were guys that had picked up Gnosticism, that the physical was evil, the spiritual was good, so it didn't matter about anything that you did to curtail the body because the body was a physical thing, and so it issued forth into immorality, which is always interesting that a guy's name was Hymenius, which is the god of sex of the Greek. I'll move on right there. And so he said, I turned them over to Satan that they might be taught not to blaspheme. They don't want to learn from the Bible. Satan will teach them because we're going to put them outside the church outside the nourishment of the word of God. And now we'll see how they do. There was a guy at Corinth that was living with his stepmother. And uh, the church was arrogant there in Corinth. They had become hit by the same Gnostic dualistic error that spirit is good, flesh is evil, and doesn't know much to do with it because it's all corrupted. And so it's kind of an antinomian idea that got in the church. And Paul said of that guy, I have already delivered him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit might be saved. In both cases, Paul assumed that when I pull the word away from them and send them out, that their freedom is going to be their own discipline. I'm going to let you experience what it is to wander from God. Can this happen to a culture? In Romans 1, Paul talks about cultures. And he says, all they, they it says, uh, 
that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. God made it evident to them since the creation of the world. And so you've got the word revelation. Man knows that he's there, but they suppress it. They won't deal with it. And then he says uh, that they go into themselves. They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. They turn away from the Bible and they go inside of themselves to find answers. Finite beings can't produce anything divine and infinite. And so they become futile in their own speculations and their heart was darkened because they exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God for an image and the form of bir man, birds, crawling creatures, and reptiles. Then man now makes his own gods. So you've got revelation, rejection, reasoning, and then replacement. You replace God with this thing. And then he says, therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored. The only thing that they will understand is AIDS and STDs and murder and the breakdown of the family. And then he goes on to say, uh, having done, he says, although they, what was it? Uh, therefore God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. I'm going to let you live out your belief. Having been filled with immorality, impurity, sensuality, strife, idolatry, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. And Paul goes into this litany of hell because that's the only thing that they'll understand. So God is going to let you that didn't want to learn from the word, you will now learn from pain and you will watch the implosion of your culture. And then he said, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same things, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. It's called reversal. Revelation, rejection, reason, replacement, reprobation and then ruin, and then reversal. Can a culture get to where it applauds evil and boos the good guys? That's when the, and it's funny because there's a particular sin in Romans 1 that it highlights all by itself. And that was the telltale mark when man will do what nature will not. The women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. The Greek says, men in men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their person the due penalty of their error. So that's a culture of what can happen. People can do it. Israel did it. We and our own, own personal lives can do it. Adam, I'm creating you all by yourself. Open your eyes. You've got life. What can you see, Adam? Me. If you'll look at me and listen to me, all the rest of creation is going to make sense. 
You'll understand the stars, the moon, why things are held together. You'll understand who you are, the animal realm, right, wrong. And someday I'm going to put you to sleep and you're going to wake up and boy, you're going to see something. It's going to be a wife and you're going to see who she is, bone of my bone. She's taken from me. And then kids are going to make sense and everything's going to make sense in the light of me. But the day that you turn the light off on me, you will surely die. Nature's not going to make sense. Man's not going to make sense. Your wife isn't going to make sense. Kids aren't going to make sense. Morality, your sex drive, how you treat people. You are going to be an astronaut on a spacewalk that we have cut the tether to the mothership. And you're going to get sucked into the black darkness. And you're not going to have any place of compass. And so, do not lose touch with me. And that's what wisdom is saying right here. Let me vent my spleen for just a second. Yeah, this, I'm 71. This will help me make it to 72, at least, if I do that. In the old days, what was prized was the gray head, right? That was wise, the wise man, the old chief. And that dusty Bible was always prized. What happened in the mid-1800s was a number of things where old was made bad and good was the novel and the new. Um, a guy named um, Hegel, George Frederick William Wilhelm, something other, Hegel. He was a German. Billy Sunday once said that if you took hell, turned it upside down, it'd say made in Germany. Okay? <laughs> I would never say that, but that's what he said. But Hegel said that all God is, is the thinking of man that works its way out in nature. Don't worry about it. That there is no final truth. You have an idea, a thesis. The opposite is an antithesis. It reconciles to a synthesis, and that becomes the next thesis. And the next antithesis is the opposite, and you reconcile to a synthesis. And so history and the mind of history is always working itself out new. What's bad is yesterday. What's good is tomorrow. And then at the same time, we had a guy named Charles Darwin. And he said, we're moving toward complexity and intelligence. The, the past is bad. The novel and the new is good. And then we had some guys that were German liberal scholars, and they took the document of the Bible and tried to say, it does not say what it says. We have discovered that it's a compilation of authors through the years that have given their ideas about God that grows in complexity. The old view of the Bible is bad. The novel view, the liberal view, with no constraints, is good. So get rid of the past, go to the future. And then we had a guy... Let's see, we had what was called the Industrial Revolution at the same time. The past was bad because we're going to invent things that will make the past a thing of the past. And so the best thing is what's being created today. And so we had our first what was called advertising. Get rid of your old stuff and get the latest stuff. It was the new 
And then we had, hang on here, science, scholarship, uh, philosophy, um, industrial revolution. Uh, I'm trying to think what the next one was. But what happened was by the time, oh, Mr. Karl Marx. And he said that history is really the story of the rich guys and the poor guys and their dominance. And it's gone from monarchies to tyrannies to democracy to capitalism and its corruptions. Workers of the world unite and everything will be hunky-dory Shangri-La whenever we have a communal system, socialism, okay, when everybody has the same things. That was called communism or socialism. Marx, Darwin, Hegel, German liberalism, uh, and the Industrial Revolution all hit at the same time. And they all had the same mantra. Past is bad. Future is good. God, no. Bible, no. Virgin mentality, no. Freedom, no. This is the best that is the new. It was the most satanic movement because it produced for us the 20th century. Hadn't this been a joy? We have killed most of mankind in the 20th century. It didn't work. Uh, let's see, I'm not completely free ranting. And so that's kind of the mantra of our day. As a matter of fact, the latest has become what is called um, cultural Marxism or wokeness. The problem with man is he is systemically racist. We need to do what to culture? What's the term? Cancel culture. Get rid of your history. Who else did that? Marx and Hitler, where you burn the books. We're going to get rid of our history. We now have a new interpretation of reality called systemic racism. We have just changed places of the guilty. That's all we've done. We've reversed who's going to hate who, and that's going to be good. And so you and I are sitting amidst a maelstrom that thinks it's smart for getting rid of the Bible. But you know, we can't do better than Romans. We can't do better than what the Word of God has. You stay put where you are, okay? I feel better. Okay, now keep watching. Uh, here in verse 30 is what's going to happen. Verse 29, if you look at that, Here's where it came from. They hated knowledge. That's called the truth of God. That's called Sunday school. That's called your Awana program. That's called vacation Bible school. That's called what grandma taught you. Anybody have a grandma named Mimi? Everybody's grandma named Mimi. And I did too. And we just revered her. She was a woman with a well-worn Bible. Well, he says, you hated knowledge. You quit going to church. It was antiquated. And in 29, you did not, what's the verb? 
choose. You made a choice and it was not the fear of God. You wouldn't accept my counsel. You spurned my reproof. So in verse 31, you're going to belly up to a banquet of consequences. You will eat the fruit of your own way and be satiated with your own devices. You want freedom? You got it. Go. You made a choice. Let me tell you what a lot of times ministry is. You ready? I get a call at my house. You maybe have heard this before. Hey, Tommy. Yeah. Could you give me some hand? Yeah. What's the problem? I'm in Dallas. I can dig it. I hate Dallas. Well, the problem is I don't want to be in Dallas. Where do you want to be? I want to be in McKinney. Okay. Did you take 380? Nah, I don't like 380. It's too narrow, too crowded. I was getting stopped by traffic. So which way did you go? I went 35. 35 goes to Dallas. Yeah, I know. I like 35. It's wide. There's a lot of room. Do you like Dallas? No. Well, see, when you take 35, you're going to Dallas in this particular universe. You're going to hit Dallas every single time. You choose a path, you choose a destination. Can you dig it? Yeah, I know, but I want to go to McKinney. Okay. What you got to do is stop, turn around, retrace, go east, get 380, get to McKinney. You don't understand. I hate 380. Do you want McKinney? Yeah. Then you got to do 380. I don't like 380. I like 35. Do you like Dallas? I hate Dallas. That's where you go. See, Tommy, I need you to show me how I can go 35 and still get to McKinney. How long have you been released? How long have you been? You've been out just a little while? Yeah. Take this down. Kendall Lucas. Give him a call and he can, he can just direct you right over there. Are you with me? Thank you. That's, that's what counseling is right there. You choose a path and you choose where it's going. You're heading somewhere. You ever watched a movie with Samuel L. Jackson called Mr. Carter? He was a black basketball coach, took a historic group of kids in a black high school. True story. Turned them into a great bunch of basketball players. Problem is, they would always lose out in the year because they flunk out of school because they didn't push education. He turned it around. He said, if you don't make these grades, you don't start. And if you don't make these grades every single week, you don't stay on the team. Because my deal is not to make you a basketball player. It's to make you a man. Samuel L. Jackson. Team starts winning. Pretty soon he gets back to him. They're not going to class. He calls them together. We made a deal. We're canceling these games because you ain't playing. Boy, things blew up the best player on the team. He made them now start going to class. And every time they weren't in class, they had to go run. Uh, what do you call them? Yeah, where you die. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the best player, the best player, he'd had it. And he gets up on the risers where they're meeting and he just throws his stuff down. He said, I'm through with his stuff. And he starts walking off and all the team freezes. 
Coach Carter, Samuel L. Jackson, looks at him and he yells his name. You're making a choice, sir. Right now, and this kid's still walking for the entrance exit. You're making a choice. You're making a call. And it's going to ripple for the rest of your life. You'll never come back from this choice. Amen. That'll preach. What he was saying is you're making a choice and it's going to last for a half a century on you. Well, you wonder what's going to happen until the next scene. Mr. Carter, hears a knock on his door, opens the door and it's the boy's mama. <laughs> She's got him. He's decided, oh, mama, he's going to be back in school. Okay. Well, that's, that's what Mr. Carter's saying right here. You're going the wrong way. In verse 32, the waywardness of the naive will kill them. The complacency of the fools will destroy them. The name of Satan in the book of Revelation is called Apollyon in Greek and Abaddon in Hebrew. Both names mean destruction. And that is Satan's longing. God is Trinity, unity, diversity, order, beauty, intelligence, reasoning, right. Satan is rebellion against the standard. He is unnatural and he delights in rising smoke. The garrison demoniac, destroy him. The prodigal, destroy him. First uh, Peter 5, he rose about like a prowling lion seeking someone to destroy. You ever seen a, Apocalypse Now? Where Robert Duvall <laughs> makes the great statement. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. It's the smell of victory. And that is what Satan says when he looks down at man. Satan loves the news. He loves to watch the late news. It's the smell of napalm, the smell of victory, to destroy man's body, destroy man's mind, destroy the church, destroy uh, countries, destroy families. Satan just stands and says, behold my might. God points to a cross. Behold my might. Well, verse 32, the waywardness is going to kill him. The complacency is going to destroy him. We're going to end up with Hugo and Katrina. We're never going to find you. The only recollection of those guys in high school with me was in the memory of John and Joe and me. They're gone. But in 33, you listen to me, you're going to live securely. You'll be at ease from the dread of evil. When you walk with God, are there still hardships that come? Sure there are. But you know what? I found out in my ancient days, I can sleep like a baby. If I've got cancer, if I've got whatever coming down, I'm okay. But when I've been unfaithful, when there's lying on my part or anything going on, I'm restless. When my heart is right with God, I can sleep like a baby. What does it say? In peace I will lay down and sleep. For thou alone, O Lord, dost make me dwell in safety. Can I show you something real quick? I'm out of time, but you know there's disease outside. 
There's no, you know, you walk outside, you're going to fall over dead within about an hour. <laughs> so let's just stay right here. If you're new here, we welcome you to the Denton Bible Church. If you'll take a look at Psalm 32, just real quickly here. This is a penitential Psalm of David. And this is my graduation speech to all of humanity, if I ever get invited. In Psalm 32, David says in verse 1, how blessed it is whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. It's marvelous to be right with God. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord doesn't impute iniquity, in whose spirit is no deceit. How wonderful not to be playing games with God. You know when David wrote this song? Right after the Bathsheba incident. And he said, I learned this because in verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin, when I was playing games with God, my body wasted away through my groaning. He said, I couldn't eat. Night and day, your hand was heavy on me. I couldn't sleep. You took me to the woodshed. My vitality, literally, my life's juices were turned into the drought of summer. That's what the Hebrew says. I was a roadkill when I was at a distance from God. It was awful. Verse five, I owned up and acknowledged my sin. I didn't hide my iniquity. I said, I'll confess it and you forgave me. Wow, are we glad that God will take you in the midst of stupidity and give you a clean slate? He will. Now in verse six, David turns to the reader and he says, listen to me. Let everyone, not just me, but everyone who is godly, let me show you what godliness is. It's not living perfectly all the time. It's repenting quickly. Penitence again, repentant. Pray in a time when you may be found or literally in a time of finding out. That's the Hebrew. Pray as soon as it comes to mind. As soon as you realize you've screwed up, you stop right where you are. You know, they say that on the plains of Kansas, they're flat with nothing on the horizons. If you wander off the road apart from your car and lose your sense of the horizon where your car is, you can start turning around and get disoriented. And you don't know, where's my car? Is it here? No, I think it's over here. And you start walking and get further away. And they will find you dead out in the prairie when maybe your car was 100 yards away and you couldn't see it. Can life do that to you? When you can't, when you, disoriented means you can't see to the east, to Israel, to God, the Orient. To get reoriented, you put your eyes back on God, back on Israel. Isn't that something? That's what the wise men were. They were properly oriented. And so, as soon as you get found out, then you pray and a flood of great waters will not reach him. The flood of great waters. David says, when you wander, there's a tsunami coming. There's a 30-foot wall of water coming about 170 miles an hour, and it's coming. And if you keep going, it's going to catch you. And so, the matter of fact, we sing this in one of our hymns. You ever heard this? Jesus, lover of my soul. David Haven, you ever heard that? That's a very famous hymn, Charles Wesley. Jesus, lover of my soul, 
Let me to thy bosom fly. Everyone who is godly prayed to thee in a time that's founding out. While the nearer waters roll, while it's nice and peaceful, while the tempest still is high. He says, pray while the waters are rolling, not when the tempest comes down on you. You know where he got that? Psalm 32. And so you pray before, the Greek says, it hitteth the fan. <laughs> because it will hit the fan. Okay, you pray. Let me look at my notes and see if I'm done. That'll do. Communion. Father in heaven, we're going to stop for just a second and remember who said to us, don't forget me, whatever you do. When you're off getting married and you're having children and you're making a living and you're buying and selling, you come to church and you remember me. Don't you ever get out of sight of me. Don't you ever lose your compass. Don't you ever close your Bible. Don't you ever graduate high school and think you're so smart that you can do it on your own. You do this in memory of me. And so, Lord, touch our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.